that's one of my very favorite songs, so I'm always, uh, always excited to hear it and sing it. Our songs of praise this morning were great. Thank you to Allison and Zach, and uh, so faithful to doing those things and all. Well, I am excited this morning, and um, I, one of the, the things you run into when I like to preach through books of the Bible. We've talked about that a lot. I, every time we start one, I mention that. Um, and uh, we, every, time the, um, every time the opportunity comes to start some, something new with that, I get really excited and I get really nervous because you, you get into a rhythm with whatever you had been doing. Like we've been working through the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis for, you know, four years, whatever it was, and four months. But anyway, sometimes it seems like that. And then you conclude that. And I like to kind of go back and forth between the Old and the New Testament because it gives us a little variety of different things. But one of the, the challenges about the Bible and, and teaching the Bible is that every individual book, letter within it is not necessarily just like the one you just did. And actually, I was really nervous about preaching through Joseph because it's all narrative. It's a story. It's, it's talking about that. And so you, you have to really dig in to find some of the ways it relates later in the scriptures. And now we come to Acts, and that's where we're going to be for the next 17 years. And I'm just kidding. Not, it, it might take that long eventually, but... Um, the book of Acts is a unique text in the New Testament. There are five or six different genres, depending on which scholar you talk to, of literature in the New Testament. The first being the Gospels, which are accounts of the life of Jesus, really the fulfillments of the prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament with kind of an extended introduction from each one of them. And all four of the Gospels take a little bit of a different angle. Then you have the book of Acts, and I'll come back to it because we're going to talk about that a lot. And then you have all the letters, first the Pauline letters, the ones that Paul wrote, which are not organized chronologically, which really messes with people's heads. And then you have, the, and they're also organized in the kind of correspondence they are. First, they're written to churches, longest to shortest in the length of the text. And then they're written to pastors long, or individuals, longest to shortest. So there are 13 books that, Paul is, is, uh, that are attributed to Paul in the New Testament. Then you get to the general letters. And if I did my math right, I, there's nine or ten of those. I'm blanking on it. But they're, they're all different kinds of things. You have the letter of the Hebrews, which we don't know who wrote down here on earth. Then you have James, which is believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament. Yes, and it's at the end. Uh-huh. Um, and then you have Peter, and you have John, and you have Jude. And then there's Revelation, which is, again, its own thing. <clears throat> so uh, it's an apocalypse. And so there are different kinds of literature, and because of the kinds of literature they are and the occasions upon which they're written, you have to approach them differently. And the book of Acts is its own cat in the New Testament. It's actually part two of one of the other Gospels, but not the one that's right before it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's part two of Luke, and we're going to look at that a little bit here in a moment. But why is John between Luke and Acts? 
Well, it's because John was the latest gospel written. So they did put those in some kind of order along the way. But Luke is part one and Acts is part two of that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are described as the synoptic gospels among scholarship. And that means that they are similar. That they tell the same stories, perhaps in a little different order, but generally it's, it's a pretty similar experience reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is the shortest, I think, I'm sorry, Mark is the shortest, Luke is the longest, and Matthew is the first one that shows up because of its Jewish leanings. It fulfills a lot of Jewish theology. John is last because it's actually written about 30 years after the synoptics, and it's written very differently than the synoptics. It's not the same. Uh, so, I mean, the story is the same. You see the fulfillment of Christ, but the way John shares the story, the way he tells the story, it's, it's very different. Then you get to the book of Acts, which is unique in itself within the New Testament. Um, so I'll come back to a little more of that. I'm kind of a, a, a nerd when it comes to history stuff. I like to jabber about it. And so if, if it seems like I've gone too long, just start nodding your head a little more. And then I'll, I'll move along. So let's stand and read the first three verses together um, of the book of Acts, chapter 1. We'll see how that's all put together. Got the fourth verse. Up there? I'm starting in one. I don't know where. I might have messed something up back there for him. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And since verse 4 is up there, let's go ahead and read it. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Lord, you are good to us. Thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for how you take care of us. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to bless you today as we learn your word together. And thank you that you brought us to this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And I just discovered that the battery is dying in this microphone. So, Okay, there we are. Now, um, with that, we're back at it. All right, uh, so it says in the first book, which is the first book? Go quickly to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to see that we have some similarities here in the introduction with Luke. Um, it says, inasmuch, which I have never, apart from reading the text of the scriptures, said inasmuch in my life. As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, there's some similarities, right? To Acts chapter 1, we see this name, Theophilus. Who was Theophilus? He was the guy that this was written to. Those are the two times we hear his name. Was it a particular individual or was it a code word? You know, there, there actually have been some speculations that uh, Luke was writing to a generally anonymous audience intentionally here. Uh, that he would share this name so that it wouldn't throw anybody under the bus if the Roman authorities came after them, if they got a hold of this. But the name Theophilus is a combination of two words that we know pretty well. Theo, Theos being God, and Philus, which is like Philadelphia, the brotherly affection. So it's the one who loves God. So, it could be a particular person. It's a similar name to what we would see in our world today as Theodore, the one who loves God, right? But really, all we really know is that Luke, and I'll come back to that in a second, addresses this to Theophilus. Now, it is historical tradition that places Luke as the author of this letter or this text. It's, it's a history more than anything. We don't see Luke's name in either one of the books he wrote. Some of you did, what? It's not uncommon in the Bible. We don't necessarily have an autographed name for every book in the Bible. As a matter of fact, all four of the Gospels are written anonymously. Again, I'll let you turn on that. Most of you probably knew that already, but some of you might not. Historic tradition of the church, early church historians were the ones who placed the names upon the Gospels that we see. Some of the things, and I, and I kind of fall into this camp and the ways I've seen the Gospel study, that the four Gospels were written for four of the disciples' missions, the apostles' missions. And the Gospel of Luke and then Acts was believed to, and this, if you have that train of thought with things, to, to work towards the mission of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Mark was believed to be pointed toward the mission of Peter. And if you look at, at Mark, it kind of reflects what we know about Peter's personality. Matthew would be the, uh, the early church leader, James, the Jewish leader in Jerusalem, the brother of our Lord, whom we have another book ascribed to him in the New Testament. And the Gospel of John, I'm just going to let you guess who that goes to. John, Okay. His mission. So, uh, all of these books are written anonymously, and his, history has given them their name. Is that fair? He makes, does that make sense? Not if you're awake still with that? Because I told you, if you start dozing off, I'll move on. All right. So, these things do matter, though, because they matter to the authenticity of the text. Because we see a lot of historical challenges to whether or not different books of the Bible are legitimate whether they really should be where they are. And what we find is that Acts is the only text that we have that tells this part of the story, that describes the mission of the apostles, the things that they were to do. And I even read, one of the commentaries I read said that Acts is really kind of an insufficient name for this particular book, 
because really it deals with two particular apostles. Anybody have those mind in their mind right now? Peter and Paul. The first 12 chapters deal strongly with the ministry of Peter. And if I end up breaking this up, that's probably how I'll do it, how I will do it. Okay? We'll probably go through chapter 12 and then we'll look at the rest of it later with the Apostle Paul. In the midst of that, chapters 5 and 6 deal with some different things with uh, some of the other church leaders. And we also see in chapter 9 the conversion of, the Saul, of Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle along the way. So all of these different things draw us together to realize that the purpose here is to see how the Holy Spirit takes leadership within the church. This is a different point in time than we will ever see, a different moment in history than we will ever see anywhere else. Because at this point, Jesus in the, in the Gospels over and over and over says that my helper will come, the counselor will come, the spirit will fall upon you. And, and, and it hasn't happened yet. And he tells them that he has to go away so that the spirit might come. Because I guess Jesus' presence was just too much for the Holy Spirit to be able to inhabit the church. That's all I can figure out. Everybody would be just looking to Jesus then. And obviously, we want to set our eyes on him because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. But how do we do that now in the life of the church? It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. And here we see that uh, Jesus gives some waiting orders to his followers. I have dealt with Jesus, all he began to do, verse 1, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit through the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he has been teaching them. He goes through the passion, the suffering of the crucifixion, and for 40 days, he spends time proving the resurrection to the, the disciples, to his followers. And we see in other accounts that he actually appears before him and, and, and shows them the scars in his hands and in his side and, and shows them that he is legitimately the Messiah. He holds power over death and the grave because of his resurrection. And friends, without the resurrection of Christ, we have nothing. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have some moral teachings and some unfulfilled promises. We would still be sitting here waiting for him to show up the first time, right? And it probably would have fizzled out by that point, although I wouldn't put it past anybody in humanity to go a little crazy about it. Because we tend to do that. You notice that? We tend to make things a little different than they might be otherwise. So Jesus appears to the disciples in so many different ways. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells them an account where he appeared to 500 people at one time. You might be able to fool one person, 
by an appearance, but it's really hard the bigger the number gets. And so Jesus' appearance to all these different groups at different times proved his conquering death. And he shows his power to overcome that. So now he says, and <laughs> I, I, I have the, the chosen rolling through my mind after we've watched it through several times, and Simon's commentary along the way when they keep saying that he's coming soon, and he goes, oh, there's that word again. Soon. <sighs> soon. He's coming soon. You know what? We, we are finding ourselves in that kind of place today. Because really, God doesn't have a timetable in eternity. He says, I'm coming when I'm coming. I'm returning when I am. And yes, for, history must be fulfilled because he has offered that to us along the way. He still is coming in his time. And so now, he, he says, in these 40 days, he tells them to not leave Jerusalem, to stay where they are, because he has reason and he has purpose. And when we get to chapter 2, we'll really start looking at that. But um, he, he shows them this message, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What we see here is the very birth of what we know as the Trinity on earth. To understand that God reveals himself to us in three ways. The Father, the, the ruler over all creation, the author of it all. The Son, the agent of creation. If you read Colossians chapter 1, you'll see that. But you find also he is the agent of redemption. He is the one who brings that forgiveness to us. And now we see that the Holy Spirit empowers the church to make his message known to the world. He says, you will be baptized with water. What does that mean? He's immersed. Oh, we got a blue screen. Uh, it will be immersed in water by John. He's, he's comparing this picture that this fulfillment would come there. But it says, then you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And friends, that is what being a Christ follower is about. That is the only way you come to faith in Christ is through baptism of the Holy Spirit and the redemption that he brings into your life. And there are other spots where we see that the people come to faith without being baptized. The obvious one, and I'm not going to chase too many rabbits on this, but is the thief on the cross, whom I, I think that's actually in the Gospel of Luke, that we see that he says, I believe in you, Lord. And it's a, Jesus says to the thief, surely you will be with me in paradise. He didn't get a chance to be baptized. Being baptized is an expression, water baptism is an expression of faith. It shows what Christ has done through us in the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a profession of our faith. You know, we, we like to walk the aisle, which there's nothing wrong with that behavior, but the Bible doesn't say anything about walking the aisle. It says be baptized. So we take that pretty literally here. That is our first expression of faith. But it's also insufficient for salvation. 
Salvation comes by faith, and faith from the Word of God. All right, a little tantrum there. The ascension. Now, here's where we get the fun, and I like that we're starting the week of uh, the, the season of prayer, week of prayer as it may be, for our missions offerings here. Because as, as Southern Baptists, and we heard from Dr. McLaurin earlier this week, a few of us in here were here on that. By the way, thank you to everybody who was a part of that, whether you're in the booth, whether you made the feast that we are still enjoying today, it carried over from Thursday morning. But we got to hear about how God is working through our giving. You know, we give forward to the cooperative program. We tithe forward from our church's giving. We give to Colorado Baptists, and the Colorado Baptists send more on to Nashville. And the vast majority of our funds that get sent forward and collected at the national level go to the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. I have forgotten what those numbers are, so I'm not going to get them wrong. But it's a lot, it's more, far more than 50% of the money that lands at the, at the executive committee in Nashville. Southern Baptists are great commission people. And so when we come back to this text, this is the text that helps guide that vision and that mission for the gospel. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, we got some backstory there, right? <laughs> They've been waiting this whole time for Jesus to take down Rome. <laughs> and he, he over and over and he says, you don't understand why I'm actually here. And they still don't. Why? I believe it's because the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen on them yet. They don't really start understanding what they're there for and how they're supposed to See it happen until they have the spiritual empowering to fulfill the command of the Great Commission. And so here's where they are. Will you cut this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Honest question. And he says to them, the, question, the, the answers that frustrate us to no end because we just want a date on the calendar. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And in this text, there's a period there. <laughs> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is one of the most commonly quoted, and we're, this is our memory verse for March, just for good effect. Because this is why we're here. We are the ends of the earth. Now, we might play it out that Pueblo is our Jerusalem and, and Colorado is our Judea and Texas is our Samaria. No, we won't go there. Um, but, no, we might play out all those things that way and then to the ends of the earth. But the fact of the matter is, is that theologically it started in Jerusalem and we're about as far as, from Jerusalem as you can get. I mean, to, okay, go, go play with Google Maps. I don't care. But nobody sitting here listening to Jesus at this moment was thinking about Colorado. Right? It's also possible that that word that's used to the end of the earth was actually describing the end of their known world. And that's in Spain. They didn't know there was anything past Spain. They knew there was something out there. There's a lot of water. But it could have identified a particular geographic location. Here's my 
heavily theological answer to that. Whoa. But the ends of the earth, to me, sound like they had a lot of work to do. Right? There's a lot of things ahead. But also, not only do we see this work out in our individual practice on it, we also see it fleshed out within the, the book that Luke has given us of Acts. We see them start out in Jerusalem, and then we see the ministry for the first several chapters work itself out in Judea and Samaria, which is the local area around where they are, the generally local area. And then, with Paul, he takes off and goes all kinds of places to the ends of the earth in chapter 13. So there's a lot of ways this plays out. This, this particular verse 8 is the theological statement for the book. All right. Now, how does it all flesh out here? The marching orders they have is that they're to wait... And they will receive the power and authority. So Jesus tells us all along the way that there's going to be a whole lot of waiting. That doesn't mean we aren't supposed to go, but it may mean that we don't see the power until he decides to give it to us. He says to listen, to learn, to grow in his word and grow in our faith. So that at that moment that he calls us to that action, we're ready to do it. And you may be called to international missions. Hallelujah. we got to have people go. And you are also called to love at your own Jerusalem, where you are right now. Because you wouldn't be here now if God didn't want you here for some reason. But God calls us together to learn his word and to wait for his power to guide us and lead us. That's why prayer is so essential. And I invite you, we, we've had for years, the whole time we've been here, uh, prayer time on Tuesday and Thursdays. I think this week we'll have to do it at 10 o'clock on Tuesday because of some schedule stuff. But 10, uh, typically 11 o'clock on Thursdays, or two, Tuesdays, 1 o'clock on Thursdays. We pray and we pray for our church. We pray and we wait for the power to come upon us. But the thing that prayer does is it sanctifies us. It cleanses us for that moment that God really wants to use us. It kind of makes me think about doing the dishes, right? Why do you do the dishes if you already ate? It's for the next time, right? We get ready for what is to come ahead of time. God wants to work in us and through us, and he calls us to pray, to be sanctified, to be strengthened, to learn, so that at that moment he calls us to whatever task is at hand, because he's called us to an act of faith that shows his goodness, that we are ready. We're ready to go. And so he says to wait. And now, this is, I always laugh at this part because of something I did when I was preaching it several years ago. Uh, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they are gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These two guys show up more than once. Right? And, and one time when I was telling this story, I had the two guys either standing a little higher or a little lower and they... Somebody tells me after the service, he's like, I didn't realize that the angels were so short. <laughs> I'm visualizing looking down the hill. Okay, anyway. So the angels stand there, 
and they give the message here. Remember, angels are not normal for humans. They don't look like chubby little babies with a bow and arrow. Terrifying warriors. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there's an eschatological, an end times picture of what happens right here is that Christ will return someday in the same way that he went up. And we need to be ready for it. And this is what the angels are telling them, to get yourselves ready. In the remainder of chapter 1, which is an interesting look into the church, the early church, talks about their waiting. And I'm not going to give it away, but I don't, as I look at the text and as I read about different commentary along the way, I'm not sure they were waiting for the right thing. <laughs> and by the beginning of chapter 2, I know they did not have any clue what they were actually waiting for. <laughs> because all of a sudden, this fulfillment came. And God's power flowed upon the church. And guys, I would say that today, if we come to the expectation of, of Christ's presence, God's going to do some things in us that we would never anticipate. But it will line up with the promise of His Word. And so as we talk about being Great Commission people going into the world proclaiming the gospel, let's do the kinds of things that God commanded of the early disciples, that is to wait with expectations that God is doing something. And that he's going to change our hearts along the way. The way God works is through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the way we get on board with that is through the power of prayer. And through his sanctification and learning his word together. And if we want to see God do something in our world today, let's look at the example of the early church and realize how essential prayer is. Okay? Let's pray for God to do something great in our midst and trust Him to fulfill His Word. Because that's why we have it, is so he, we can see what He has done and what He wants to do. What does He want to do? He wants every tribe, tongue, and nation to kneel before His throne and worship. And how will they know except that they hear the message along the way? Pray for yourselves to be sanctified by the power of the of the Holy Spirit. Pray for our church together to be sanctified and unified to glorify that word. Pray for the, the community around us to be transformed by the power of the gospel. And encourage those who are in the middle of it to keep it up. To be faithful because God is there. He is present. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the salvation you give us in Jesus. And I pray that today we recognize your power at work through the Holy Spirit as we, like the disciples, were waiting for your first coming of the Spirit, Lord, that you, we, we had now expectantly wait on your return. But know that you empower us to make much of your name here on earth. Help us to live a life that blesses you to glorify you in our word, in our speech, in the things that we do, 
that we wouldn't drag your name into the mud, but that we would exalt it and show the world how you forgive, how you love us.